everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Core Console RX Podcast. My name is Mike Corvino. With me, as always, my co-host, Cole Swanson. And today, we have a very, very special guest. We got Brian coming in all the way from which hospital, Brian? Wesley Medical Center in Wichita, Kansas. There you go. We're going to be talking about traumatic brain injury. So... I'm going to let Brian kind of introduce himself and uh, give a little bit of his background. And then we're going to talk about kind of his steps in doing emergency medicine and going through residency and all that, looking at critical care. And then we will uh, look at a traumatic brain injury case. And this one will be a little bit different because we're not going to go so in-depth with the case, but more so like the algorithm of, of dealing with such a complex issue like traumatic brain injury. Mm-hmm. So, Brian, give us the, the, the history. All righty, the history, the 30-second history. So I actually uh, did my undergrad uh, training and, and studying at the, the Florida State University in Tallahassee. Um, I got my bachelor's in uh, about chemistry, you know, in that area. was thinking maybe medicine, uh, also pharmacy. Um, really when it came down to it, I was able to shadow both a physician and also shadow a clinical pharmacy specialist and decided that was the path I wanted to take. Um, Applied to pharmacy schools and actually was able to stay within the state of Florida. Uh, Did my training at the University of Florida. Uh, Graduated in 2015. Um, During my time in in curriculum and training uh, at the University of Florida, uh, developed a, a passion for critical care and sort of these complex patient cases and um, this sort of algorithm or way of not always having the black and white answer that, uh, you know, pharmacy school kind of pushes on you a bit. Was able to actually do an internship program um, at the Johns Hopkins Hospital in uh, Baltimore and was able to actually spend a summer in the critical care pharmacy satellite there actually did patient rounding, um, was able to uh, be part of a research project at which point we were able to get that published. And so it was just really from the early stage of pharmacy, uh, our pharmacy school was able to really hone down. That's exactly what I wanted to do. I was lucky because I know that a lot of people don't always get that, but um, second, third year pharmacy school, I was like, I knew I wanted to be a critical care practitioner. Um, So I knew that I needed to go down the residency pathway for that. So um, started looking at different ways to try to make my application as uh, competitive as possible. Um, was lucky enough to be able to do a, a PGY-1 residency at uh, Jackson Memorial Hospital in Miami, Florida. Very large hospital, very big institution. Miami is a very uh, almost unforgiving place at times, so it was really a great place to train because the patient population was so acutely ill. Um, so it was definitely a uh, learning uh, learning curve there in terms of uh, delving into the critical care aspect. Um, then was able to uh, apply for uh, PGY-2 in critical care um, and landed out here in uh, Wichita, Kansas, um, where I did my PGY-2 in critical care. And um, during my uh, residency, I was trying to figure out exactly what I wanted to do. I knew I loved um, emergency medicine. I knew I loved trauma. I knew I loved uh, neurocritical care. Um, so I applied for jobs and positions out there for that. Um, 
but when it came down to it, I was able to get all of that into the position I'm in now, which is more emergency medicine, trauma, and neurocritical care all into one at Wesley Medical Center, primarily working out of the ED. So it's been great. And we've actually started services. Uh, we've been doing it now about five months and uh, it's uh, it's been a lot of work, but it's also been very rewarding. Awesome. And for those of you who aren't super familiar with a pharmacy residency, it's pharmacy graduate year one and two. And generally the first year is a, a general residency where you see a lot of different things and kind of almost rotate like you would during a clinical rotation. And then the second year is much more specific into what you're going into, like critical care. And is that that's how it was for you? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I kind of uh, correlate it to your PGY one year is more of your internal medicine year where you're doing every aspect of training, whether it be out, you know, you do an outpatient, you're doing infectious disease, you're doing internal medicine, cardiology, uh, critical care, you're doing emergency medicine. So all of these are wrapped into one um, where you're not able to really specialize at that point yet because you're not really trained at that point to be able to do that. Um, it's also great in that the first year with it being so well-rounded, you get a better um, overall um, look at the whole patient stay for the, uh, or the patient stay. So, I mean, you go from the early stages of outpatient therapy to they get acutely ill, they go through the emergency, uh, emergency room. Now they're in the ICU and they get better. They're going into, um, the floor and now they're off again, back to the outpatient setting. So they actually get a great overview of that. And it's, um, it can be frustrating at times because you're, you know, your heart's pulling you towards critical care or another area. And then at that point, you still need to, you know, give your all to that rotation. But um, yeah, it's a, it's a great uh, first year. And then second year is even better because you're able to just dive deep into um, the area that you love and try to figure out exactly within that area, what's my subspecialty going to be. So critical care patient, there's different uh, aspects, but then within the trauma patient, there's different nuances that uh, go on as opposed to a medical patient. So right. yeah, that second year is really where you figure out, not only do I want to do this aspect of medicine, but a subspecialty of that. So right. going through PGY one year, was there anything that drew your interest and was like, hey, this is pretty interesting too. And if you had decided, say you wanted to pursue that, did you have that option or were you kind of stuck on critical care at that point and couldn't really get out? You know, and unfortunately, the way our, our training with pharmacy is, is that, um, you know, you have to know pretty early on what you want to do in that uh, second year because um, the application process happens so very fast. Right. You usually, you usually get into a program in July, you know, sometimes oh, really? maybe June if you're lucky. And then by December, you're already sending out applications. And so... Um, if you're not, you know, hundred percent sure, it's always good to schedule those, uh, rotations early on so that you can kind of get an idea of, yes, this is what I want to do with my life or no, I don't want to do this with my life. Right. Um, and then there may be something that springs up on you that you didn't know about. There's plenty of stories out there where, um, not like mine, where I've just dead set, that's what I wanted to do, but there's other, ask, other, other people that have, um, those stories that, Hey, I kind of fell into my job and I absolutely love it. So cool. That's awesome, man. So, you know, with all your training and you're so specialized in emergency medicine and critical care, do you feel like that you could 
jump into another role, say, uh, you know, family medicine or something like that at this point, or is that just too far gone, or do you feel like you could easily get, retrain yourself and go back? You, you know, the, that's the great thing about having that first year of residency. Um, would I feel as comfortable as somebody that has done it or been specialized in it? Probably not. Um, but that's the kind of the whole point of that first year is to give you exposure to that um, uh, so that you're able to, to jump into that if needed. Um, I would say it's a little bit more difficult to, to go from specialty to specialty, um, depending on the institution you work at as well. It's probably going to be a big factor as well. So if you're specializing in emergency medicine or critical care and you try to jump into infectious disease at like a large academic medical center, it's probably not going to happen. Um, right. But you could go to maybe a smaller community hospital that is trying to start up their infectious disease program and say, this is the what I've done. And so you could probably do it. It's not impossible, but it's definitely, definitely makes your path a little bit more difficult. Yeah, that makes sense. And that's probably how it is for most professions. Um, once you specialize and you're there in it for a while, it's hard to bounce back out and go to something else, but it's possible. Um, well, cool. So talk about a little more specific about what you do on a day-to-day basis. So what are your hours like and, um, what do you usually see as far as patient population? (laughs) Yeah. So that's the best part about, uh, my job is I literally walk in and I have no idea what I'm going to see. Um, you can start the first half of your day and it can just be, you're not supposed to say it, but it can be quiet or calm. Right. And then all of a sudden all hell breaks loose. Right. Um, you can have a three or four car pile up that all of a sudden now you're trauma based full where it was empty and you had crickets going on earlier. Um, so in terms of what I get to see, it's really the all aspects and all spectrums of patients in the emergency department, you have a wide range um, usually starting off at triage, there's a triage nurse or somebody there that's um, assessing how sick this patient is um, once they hit your doors. And then they get, um, again, they'll get assorted or stratified based off of that level to either, you know, things like urgent care type deals that maybe maybe aren't quite as uh, right. acute as like the guy that just got shot in his leg. Right. So, um, you know, there's all different levels of triage and there's a whole system on that, but the good thing about emergency medicine is it's probably every aspect of pharmacy rolled into one. So I see aspects of outpatient pharmacy. I see aspects of internal medicine, infectious disease, critical care, um, pediatrics. I mean, I see quite quite a big spectrum of patients. Um, My daily activities include, you know, just making recommendations to, to physicians and providers on the, the acute care of these patients, whether it be, you know, antibiotic related or it's pain related or all the way up to a critically ill patient that I am, you know, managing their pressors or managing their sedation at that point after they've been intubated. If they haven't got, you know, haven't gotten intubated and they're about to get intubated, I will look at uh, rapid sequence intubation meds. You know, it's a whole spectrum and it's a lot and it's fast paced. Um, but for the adrenaline junkie type uh, pharmacist, this is probably the best best route for you. Um, hours wise, uh, I do seven days on seven days off. Um, and I do 10 to 11 hour days, sometimes 16, depending on the, (laughs) depending on the day and depending on the patients. But, um, 
it's a it's definitely rewarding and it's definitely challenging all into one um, but it keeps me on my toes having to know um, really just a little bit about everything for for each patient population yeah nice. for sure so um what's your interaction like like interprofessionally with the physicians or pas or whoever's on the floor how, how is your relationship with all them are they receptive Sure, sure. So, um, you know, we initially did not, we haven't had services down in our emergency department. Um, this is the first time we've done it. And so we actually had no idea what to expect going into it, my partner and I, um, but it's been so receptive. And really it's all about just showing exactly what pharmacy can do in terms of not just uh, logistics and operational type things, but that clinical aspect and and showing them how well we are uh, versed in the literature and coming up with good recommendations. It really just takes one or two really big recommendations to kind of, you know, almost save their butt or make a great recommendation at that, at that point, they uh, are going to be really super receptive. I would say to your younger generation that have grown uh, or trained with uh, clinical pharmacists, it's so much easier than maybe an attending that's been, a seasoned attending that's been there for quite a while. Right. Um, they're not quite as receptive. Um, and granted, they've been, they were, you know, practicing back in the seventies when there was like five meds. So right. they knew all of them and they knew exactly like what to do. And so, um, you know, sometimes when you have sort of your young hotshot pharmacists coming in there and saying, we should do this, this, and this, and you know, there's a little bit of medical dogma that goes on with your older attendings, which is, um, it can be good and bad, but for the most part, I would say it's, it's not helping, uh, patients overall because these older attendings teach the younger docs. And then it just kind of this cycle of almost ignorance sometimes, <laughs> but overall, I would say it's very, they're, they're very, very receptive. Yeah. That's awesome. Cool. I, I remember, uh, when I was a fourth year, one of my rotations, I did neurology and, um, one of the neurology, he's the chief resident for neurology. I was him and then me and a med student and then a couple other residents and things. And the chief, the med student asked him or asked a question that he wasn't really sure about. It was about a specific, like getting a drug covered, like by insurance. And I happened to know the answer to it. So I kind of told him and their chief resident like said, awesome. Thanks for that. And he turned around to the med student and he said, make sure whenever you end up and you're doing your residency, make sure you are super nice to your pharmacist. He goes, my pharmacist saves my butt. Like, probably twice a day and it was just really cool to see someone because he was a super super smart chief resident i mean this guy's gonna be a phenomenal neurologist and it was cool to see someone at that level still like respecting you know the farm d that was on the staff and and appreciate that aspect of it because i think that's one of the things that's been a struggle is you know we've gone through such a big transition of like the guy with a bachelor's degree that puts some potions together and makes a compound to where it is now in such a short time it's been, it's not so much as like, oh, well, we're, we're, let me just jump into this job. It's a lot of times like creating the job from nothing and absolutely and yeah. earning the respect. So that's, it's cool that, you know, you're getting to work directly with them. And yeah. And speaking it, to that briefly, I worked with a pharmacist just recently who's um, a little bit older and she was working, you know, way back when in the, the days of pharmacy, like you mentioned. And she said in school, they discouraged um, counseling the patients on medications and doctors discouraged it. Um, it. Essentially, if it wasn't what the doctor told them, you couldn't tell them otherwise. 
And I, I, don't know, I just, I couldn't imagine working in a pharmacy field like that, but that's how it was, which is strange. It has changed a lot. And, you know, there's, and, and, you know, no, going back into the critical care world for me, I mean, it's, I, you know, there's plenty of uh, papers that have been published on the interdisciplinary role of a team approach for medicine that has shown such benefit to patients. Um, critical care medicine or CCM just published this month a paper on the utility of an ICU pharmacist and um, they didn't see any mortality data, but they showed that length of stay and cost to the hospital and patient were both decreased, um, which to me are both win are all wins in, the, in that situation. Sure. I mean, there's just so much literature there that um, we make a huge impact. Um, and, and so, like you said, I, I don't, I don't see us ever, it's tough and difficult, but once we start phasing out some of those, um, you know, older generation of not only just, uh, physicians and PAs and things like that, but, um, once we're able to solidify kind of who we are as pharmacists as well, um, I don't know if we have that great answer of, of that as well. Um, but I think we're moving in the right direction. You know, one of the things I think that kind of hurts us as pharmacists sometimes is that on an individual level, your physicians and providers, you know, they'll tell you their face how much they love you and how much of, of an impact you're making. But then you get to their large organizations like and they're kind of anti-pharmacist at that point, which, right. you know, an extra they're, salary they're, to pay for them. Yeah, exactly. Scrambling for their own power at that point, which is fine in, in terms of, um you know, not wanting to give it up, but there's, you know, the per paternalistic model of medicine just doesn't work anymore. It's right. just, it's doesn't. Yeah. So, and it goes beyond pharmacy. I mean, all around there's, there's, um, a push for interprofessional medicine, uh, with quality metrics becoming so much more important and people seeing that NPs and PAs and nurses can be utilized in ways that they hadn't been before. Um, it's, it's changing in, in, I think a positive way. Absolutely. You know, and I think, too, a big factor that's going to play into whether or not, you know, pharmacy becomes even bigger than it is already becoming is individual pharmacists making a big difference as well. Because, and I'm talking, you know, we I work in community pharmacy, so I see this a lot, where you can get by and do your job as a community pharmacist without necessarily spending a lot of time on continuing education but that doesn't then play into, okay, well, how can I show them how much value I have? Because, you know, I'll talk to some community pharmacists that, you know, there's been a drug out for four months and they've never even heard of it. And it's something to treat diabetes. And I'm like, how, how have you not heard of this at this point? You know, so, and I think it's huge on the pharmacist standpoint to not, to look towards the future of the actual profession and see that we need to be pushing ourselves to learn more utilize literature and then constantly keep evolving as individual practitioners as well to actually make a name for ourselves. Cause it's, it's only hurting us if we have a big group of pharmacists, it's not just community pharmacists, there's plenty of hospital pharmacists that kind of skate by too. It's just human nature, unfortunately. But yeah, I think that if, if we push ourselves and, and show the value individually, then it's going to eventually carry over. And all these new physicians, like you were saying that have grown up, and going through school right alongside pharmacists have kind of recognized. I think I, I completely understand. I feel like the older attendings who, you know, back when they were coming up, a pharmacist who was a guy with a bachelor's degree that worked in a shop. Like, I, if I was them, I probably wouldn't take the advice either. You know, they, they didn't grow up with the same kind of pharmacist 
that we have now. So I think it's a, it's on the pharmacist as well to keep pushing that envelope and, and learning and showing the value. And part of that goes into, like you said, staying up to the literature, but also creating the literature. So um, writing as much as you possibly can as a pharmacist and to understand that the, the research projects that we uh, create our own um, also has value. Uh, it, we, we're never going to have the large 2000 patient randomized controlled trial. We're just not, unfortunately, <laughs> but our data, you know, our studies can be designed to a way that the data can be relevant and it can also help and impact patients. So, yeah, absolutely. So kind of going on that, go off topic a little bit from critical care, but what's your thoughts? You know, obviously you're a smart guy, really well-educated, done all this extra specialty training. What is your thoughts on, because obviously Cole and I push social media for a, a tool for learning and continuing education. What's your thoughts on that for, say, 10, 15 years out? Because there's a lot of schools, like we had discussed on the phone at the one point we first met, like there's a lot of schools that really encourage students to get rid of your Instagram and all these like horrible <clears throat> social media platforms that are destroying the country. Like what's your thoughts <laughs> on that for, uh, for education? So, uh, you know, it's funny, my, my partner is actually a guy that I trained with at the university of Florida. And so, um, we brought him in, I was able to get him uh, the position here with me, which has been great. But one of the questions he really likes to ask all, um, of our residency interview candidates is how, how do you stay up to date on, uh, the literature? And he makes fun of me because I'm still trying to learn the best approach to use, utilize social media and its aspects for uh, continuing education because he's great at it. He, he follows all the right people on Twitter. He follows all the right accounts on Instagram and Facebook and things like that. Um, I think that you, our generation is going to utilize its tools to the, the best capability. And to do that, you have to use social media. Um, that's one of the reasons that I'm trying to get better at it is I, I'm not great at it. I'm still kind of an old, old school uh, paper journal guy. I still get them delivered to the house. That <laughs> it's awesome. uh, it's really funny. Yeah, I know you guys can laugh. I'm uh, a millennial in a digital world here trying to figure it out. But um, yeah, no, I, it has a role. Obviously, you need to um, maybe censor some of what you're doing in terms of your personal life if if it is something that um, is questionable, you know, it's just like you see with every athlete that ever hits send, you're like, why, what an idiot. Why would you put that out there into the universe and never get, now you can't take it back. Um, it's the same thing. I mean, I, I won't lie. When we get residency candidates, we do a quick Facebook search and see if you're out and doing things probably inappropriate. But I also have um, Facebook groups with the critical care pharmacy literature update for SCCM that we're a part of. And I get a lot of, uh, a lot of articles that I wouldn't have probably found otherwise, unless it was that, you know, using, using Twitter for some of the toxicology, uh, uh pharmacists that are out there is great as well. And they can tweet out different things. And I think it has its role. Um, I'm not exactly sure if we know what that role is yet, but, um, I feel like, you know, you guys put putting on a great podcast like this, it's a step in the right direction. And it may be something that pharmacists in general could probably uh, maybe take a hold of. I know that in terms of medicine, there's maybe a few guys, Weingart's out there, but, um, and the uh, NCRIT podcast. But other than that, I can't really think of too many medicine-based uh, social media accounts that are 
probably as up to date or as thorough as pharmacists. Sure. And as far as staying up to date, um, I mean, it's whatever works for you. So social media yeah. is an option for people who that works for. Paper journals are an option for people who that works for too. You know, I mean, me myself, if I'm reading a book, I do, I like to have the book in my hand. I don't like to, you know, use a Kindle, even though it is like super, super convenient. I prefer to like flip a page and read a book. Um, and I still get, I like to get emails of new drugs that come out and new trials and stuff. I like emails, but I also use social media. So it's just whatever works for you. And developing social media in a way that um, is advantageous for a clinician, um, maybe someone who is younger and that's what they like. That's going to help them for sure. Um, I think you guys should design a class on the utility of social media and how you can use it to stay up to date with the literature. And then you can go into evaluating the literature as well. There you go. There you go. All right. Next podcast. That's uh, that's going on the list of to do things. So Rich, uh, <laughs> Rich from RX Radio, he's on Instagram. He's got a podcast as well. Him and I actually were just talking about that probably two weeks ago. About because him and I are about to go. We met on Instagram. You know, realized he was in their pharmacist from Miami, and they said, you know, we are. Uh, we're he's him and his fiance and me and my wife are actually all four of us going on vacation here in a couple weeks, which is pretty you know pretty funny that like we you know we met on Instagram, and uh, it's a tale as old as time, and. Uh, <laughs> So we're we're going out there, but we actually talked about yeah. So we're, we uh, we we talked about doing that and how that a class like that would look and what the future of that would look like. So we've we've talked about that. I think that'd be pretty pretty interesting as well. And also, I feel like it might be prudent to mention, even though we are both pharmacists and we interview a lot of pharmacists and we talk about a lot of pharmacy things, we do want the podcast to be um, helpful to any healthcare professional. So nurses, NPs, PAs medical assistance, farm techs, if there's ways that we can improve it to tailor it towards you guys too, let us know. mcorvino at coreconsultrx.com. That's Boom. my mid-podcast plug. Yeah, mid-podcast plug. So, and, you know, kind of bro. Okay, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll put something up there. <laughs> the, uh, you know, going off what you said too, I actually mentioned this when I was on uh, Adam Smith's podcast. He's the the fit pharmacist if you have, for Instagram. Um, when I was on his podcast, he, he asked, uh, about social media and things like that. And my comment was if, if you're too dumb to know that you shouldn't put a picture of yourself doing a keg stand on your public Instagram where people can see, you probably aren't smart enough to do a residency in the first place and you don't deserve one. There you go. And I, and I, you know, that's a little harsh and whatever, but I, like you were saying, you go and check Instagram you know, to see if it, or Facebook or whatever, to see if you're coming on residents are on there and what they're kind of doing. And it makes sense. You know, my, my personal Facebook page is wide open. Like anybody can go on there and look at it. I don't have pictures of me doing idiotic things, partly because I'm a dork and probably don't do anything cool <laughs> that would get me in trouble anyway. But you know, I, nobody was really, there's nothing on there that would get me in trouble that I wouldn't want like a residency program or a hospital or whatever, or an employer, to see, or, an employer to yeah. see. So I think that's the big thing is why, one, why are you putting, if, if you have something to hide, to me, if like somebody's like all private and like changing their name, that to me would be more of a red flag. Like, well, why, you're obviously hiding something. You're trying to pretend like you're this perfect student or whatever, and you're living a different life behind closed doors. So I think social media just kind of, uh, you know, exposes people to the, re- the reality of who they really are, not just, you know, gets them in trouble. It's not like they just one time 
you know, I mean, maybe some cases, but if you're taking a bunch of pictures doing crazy stuff, it's probably just because you do crazy stuff, not because that one time happened to go on Facebook. Man, it's probably a good idea too that you use those uh, view tools on those apps. Like, what can people see? What can they not see? But also, too, remember that you know, as you as we've kind of alluded to too, as uh, pharmacy is a small world, oh, so yeah. you're going to get asked about and asked around a lot. So, um, not being not being an idiot and putting stuff up there that probably shouldn't be up there. Um, and then basically, like you said, asking your asking the question, you know, I always ask myself, would my mom be proud of this picture or not? Right. So <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And I'm also in the same category. I don't really do anything probably super outrageous. I'm as a dork as well. So all dorks. That's the consensus here. <laughs> nice. Three so, dorks on a podcast. So we have no business talking about <laughs> it. <laughs> Rage. I mean, Rage, yeah, it's a small world because you know two guys that graduated with Mike randomly and you're out in Kansas, literally in, in Wichita, Kansas, and know two guys that Mike graduated. On purpose. Right. <laughs> on purpose. Yeah. That's Man. not that's just something you don't see every day. We got off topic <laughs> anyway. Yeah, totally off topic. It's good though. We talk about whatever. Yeah, you well, learn a lot from this. That's why I like podcasting. There you go. <laughs> so cool. So bringing it back in, um, do you want to kind of go into the patient case so we can kind of like start working through the algorithm of traumatic brain injury and how you handle things? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so are they going to have this available? We can. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'll, I'll put it on my website so, so they can download it. We'll put it up on the website, poorconsultrx.com slash podcast, and just scroll down to episode. What will this be? Seven. seven? Yeah. Lucky number seven, and it'll be there to click on. Or actually, it'll okay. probably be on the front page for the time being, yeah. at least for like the next week or so. So there you go. Awesome. You know, when you start talking about critically ill patients and emergency medicine patients in general and, and traumatic brain injuries being part of that, the first thing you really need to think about, um, and if you're in trouble as a resident or a student or a nurse practitioner, PA, whoever, um, or a young physician is always going back to your ABCs. So airway, breathing, and circulation. Those should probably be your first questions at all time for these patients. Um, then specifically, when you start talking about TBI, you can probably break it down into uh, three or four different categories in terms of their management. So the initial management will be the pre-hospital care. You know, EMS, um, paramedics, whatever, that are, are taking care of this patient initially. So you need to know exactly how to treat that as well or what's been done in the field uh, before they get to you as a pharmacist. Um, second would be once they actually get to your emergency uh, room or trauma bay, how you're going to treat that as well. And then um, lastly or third would probably be once you've stabilized and got them to the unit and then after that, there's some, there's some other um, probably aspects to post TBI care that probably not uh, going to be something to get into on this podcast or that I'm not really able to speak about, but you know, there are aspects of that care right. as well, rehabilitation and, and things like that. So we can kind of get into the case initially. Sure. So I'll read it off if you'd yeah. like. Yeah, yeah but, perfect. Because there can be some um, people who just want to listen and do not want to download it. Right. So go for it. Which is okay. That's all right. If you're in your car <laughs> and you don't want to download it, totally yeah. cool. Please just let Maybe it's the soothing sounds of my voice that puts you to sleep. Yeah. Right? <laughs> um, but this is, these, this is so I, I say this, and this is literally the type of situation that you get um, on when EMS calls you on the radio as you're, you know, as I'm sitting in my office, I can kind of, you know, I'm right in the emergency department. I can actually hear what's going on and what they see out in the field. So this is kind of what report you may get. Um, 
either via EMS or once they get to um, once they get to your trauma bay. But we have a 22 year old male with no no medical, neurological, or psychiatric problems. They're brought to the emergency room after a MVA or a motor vehicle accident. Paramedics at the scene report that he had a GCS or a Glasgow coma scale of 11, but then en route to hospital, he deteriorated rapidly from a cognitive and behavioral standpoint. He has a GCS of set or five now, and his blood alcohol level is above the legal limit. Uh, no evidence of skull fractures, significant facial injury, or multi-trauma, although he has a few rib fractures. He's intubated upon arrival to the emergency room. CT scan is performed and immediately uh, we see a large left subdural hematoma. So that's kind of sort of your progression as we go um, of the TBI patient. Um, and we can talk about, you know, epidemiological uh, facts of TBI. I mean, it's one of the leading causes of um, pediatric death, young mm -hmm. adult deaths. Um, in terms of incident rate, you're talking about two and a half million per year will suffer some sort of TBI. Mm -hmm. So it's a very large problem that we have within the U.S. Um, so for your civilians, you're going to talk about mostly the mechanism of injury is going to be motor vehicle accidents or falls. So you have a lot of elderly patients that are going to fall, and you also have these uh, MVAs that come in. Um, and usually they happen kind of you know they're obviously going to they can happen at any sort of speed but for your mvas it's really going to be high speeds that you see this um, for non-civilians you'll actually see a lot of blast injuries uh, which is really no surprise at that point um, but it's a it's a growing problem as well the incidence of tbi has really risen probably over the past 10 years and that's yeah. probably because we've had more access to more toys that go fast yeah. so <laughs> that's something to think about as well um, in terms of pathophysiology, you can break it down as well. Um, you'll have uh, a primary injury, which is basically the injury that uh, caused the TBI itself, um, whether it be some sort of external force, blunt injury, like we said, blast injury. Um, there's really nothing we can do to prevent that. I mean, seatbelts, obviously, for MVAs, um, for children, if they're riding bikes or things like that, uh, helmets on them, those are things that we can do to try to prevent but overall, the, the main thing for uh, TBI management for healthcare uh, workers will be the prevention and management of secondary injuries. Mm -hmm. That's usually vital and key. Yeah. And to preventing, I guess, falls in the elderly, that might be one place where pharmacists can intervene if they have a lot of medications that are putting them at high risk for falls. You know, Absolutely. When you start talking about beer, the beers list yeah. and things like that, that's a great point that as a as an outpatient pharmacist, you have a great effect on that. So you can see those multiple uh, syncopal agents that could potentially prevent that. That's a great point. Um, yeah. And, and to absolutely. those stats, I wanted to add a little bit that I thought was kind of shocking. Um, about 50,000 people die per year from TBIs um, and 230,000 people are hospitalized and survive from them along with those millions that you said sustain them. So PSA, don't drink and drive, guys. Seriously. Just don't do it. Absolutely. Um, you know, the other thing, too, when you say 250,000 or so actually survive, that's not even accounting for the morbidity afterwards. Right. I right. mean, these things can leave you very much disabled at this point. So in terms of your death toll and mortality rate, it's probably, you know, functional mortality at that point, mm -hmm. probably pretty high as well. I think CDC says 80 to 90 
thousand people every year experience the onset of a long-term disability. And right now there's about 5.3 million um, Americans living um, who have had TBIs in the past, which is significant. Absolutely. Something I thought was pretty um, we, interesting was when I when I did my surgery and trauma rotation in, in school, um, one of the I remember the attending talking about as we had a patient with a TBI come in, and the uh, attending was talking about how often you'll see complete changes in personality after like a severe TBI if the patient survives, whether or not you know that's intellectual ability or this third like they have anger issues and all these things. That that's pretty fascinating as well because that affects the family and everybody else as well it's absolutely pretty sad probably the most famous tbi case and maybe you learned about it in school but phineas gage mm-hmm. so i've heard of yeah yeah phineas i've heard gage, of that yeah, phineas, <laughs> phineas gage uh received the metal rod uh through his uh, left temporal lobe i believe and that's where he was like kind of this nice guy and peaceful never heard a fly and then all of a sudden he turns into this you know the hulk so that you're right. It, it, there's a high morbidity associated with the survivors as well. And it's not just once they leave, it's not, they're not done. Um, and unfortunately, I mean, it's, like I said, it's a growing uh, problem within the U S. Yeah. Um, so good, good PSA there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, when we start talking about these patients, the, the management of it is all around preventing secondary Im- injuries. So secondary injuries begin right after uh, the the initial trauma, the primary trauma, and it happens on a microscopic and macroscopic level. So microscopically, you will have cellular damage, um, which will cause um, cytotoxic edema, which is essentially your intracellular contents are now being spewed out into the extracellular content. And then macroscopically, there may be um, blood that's actually um, onto the brain tissue itself, which is damaging. Um, so those are sort of your main mechanisms of secondary injury. Um, and the reason we focus on these so much is that we can prevent them and can, or we can control them. And so that's sort of your overall uh, rationale as to the importance of what pharmacists can do is we'll go into it a, a little bit, but um, managing these secondary injuries is key and they're very vital to the patient's outcome. Um, and just, so really the biggest two that we'll, we'll, we can guess, I guess we'll go back into the patient case. So sure. the first thing you want to think about, or the things that I'll take you through my thought process. And yeah. this is a, uh, this is mostly guided by my interpretation of literature. If you ask another emergency medicine pharmacist, a neurocritical care pharmacist, a trauma pharmacist, they may have a different opinion on things, but Overall, I will, I'll go into my thought process on it. So I think 22-year-old male, he's got a TBI as, is, as per uh, the paramedics and EMS being reported. He's got a GCS of 11. So at that point, we're not quite at the, he's probably out of it. And it's tough to tell at this point, is the GCS 11 because he's got alcohol on board or is it due to the TBI? Can you talk about the GCS score a little bit and what that is? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the the Glasgow, it's a, it's a funny score, or not funny score, but it's it's an interesting story how it was developed. So it was actually developed in Glasgow um, in the UK, and, and it was developed in the 70s by a couple of neuro uh, neurosurgeons that were professors at the University of Glasgow. And the whole um, idea of it was that these paramedics were trying to explain to the hospital 
and describe how these patients looked and how sick they really were. And um, what was happening was that they were saying, oh, well, we think they have a brain injury. Well, how bad is it? And they had really no way of doing or knowing. So the neurosurgeons would have to be called into the hospital because they would have to evaluate and they had no idea whether or not they'd have to take them to surgery or not. Well, the neurosurgeons kind of got tired of call getting called in for brain injuries that weren't really all that severe. And so they ended up trying to develop this, um, this scale to try to prevent them from having to be called in at three in the morning. And that's really the rationale. It's, it's, it's out of, it's bred out of pure laziness a little bit, but it, it's a validated scale that really just tries to stratify patients on in their uh, brain injury and their neurological status. Uh, for those who don't know anything about the Glasgow UK, it's probably one of the most violent cities in the world. Um, they have a ton of TBIs and they have a ton of violence associated with that area. So this was this was kind of dubbed the TBI capital of the world um, in the late 70s, early 80s. Um, so it's just an interesting standpoint that violence and laziness kind of created this now universal right. validated scale. Right. <laughs> um, and actually we use it, um, it's a 15 point scale, which the original scale was actually used at 14 um parameters to it this is actually the one we use today is the modified uh glasgow como scale which is 15 criteria but um i won't get into it because i don't routinely assess for that but it basically gets broken down into three parts your motor ocular uh, and verbal responses and based off of the criteria it will tell you you know how how severe this neurological injury probably is at this point so it's a scale that goes from three to 15, three being very, very, um, very bad. Right. Um, and 15 is what we are right now at this point. Um, three is really just um, 14. no neurological function at that point. You may have minimal at, at best. Um, <laughs> my girlfriend likes to joke that this laptop has a GCS of three. The chair you're <laughs> sitting in has a GCS of three. <laughs> like that's, that's the type of, uh, mm -hmm. um, things we're talking about with there and just but, for um just for plug number two of the podcast mike did make a nice little post about that today yeah. so um check out instagram if you want to see a breakdown of the glasgow coma scale yeah that was great that like it looked great and it's routinely done too they'll have it out in the trauma bay and within the the ed when you're assessing these patients and you'll hear them say what did you get for your gcs um so there's an old uh, kind of medical dogma, dogma uh, situation too that we sort of live by. The lower the GCS, um, the more you're not able to uh, maintain your own airway. So the old audit uh, Amish is um, GCS of eight intubate. And so you'll see that and hear that quite a bit. Um, so for this patient initially with a GCS 11, I'm not thinking he needs to be intubated initially. But if he starts to deteriorate, which we see later on within the patient case he does, this calls for him to be intubated. Now, as a pharmacist, um, what's important to me when the pre-hospital stage is, um, how are they assessing this GCS? So per the TBI guidelines and per the emergency neurological life support course that is um, sponsored by the Neurocritical Care Society, they say not to assess for the G, the, assess the GCS until you've actually resuscitated this patient. So that means give them oxygen, give them fluid if they need it, if they're hypotensive. 
So that is something I would want to ask is in the field, this GCS is 11, but is this, you know, when, at what stage is this? Right. Um, also too, again, just not, uh, not, not to hit it home on the head though, but this guy has alcohol on board. So it's tough at that point to fully appreciate what his GCS is. So in my head, as, as they're coming and they're on the bus trying to get to the hospital, I'm trying to think, okay, so what is he going to need? It sounds like he may have a TBI. It sounds like maybe at this point, he may be a little drunk. Uh, so I need to think about those things. So he may be combative. So I have to think about uh, what agents can I use that will not affect uh, him if he is agitated um, and then uh, affect his, his secondary injuries at this point. So for, for this, now that I hear his GCS is five, at that point, I'm going to think about the meds that I'm going to want to use for uh, rapid sequence intubation. And there's been a lot of debate in terms of which medications have uh, increased associated mortality with it. Some of the neuromuscular blockers have uh, an increase in the amount of uh, mortality associated with it, but it's all mixed data at that point. Probably the most controversial to date, too, for RSI meds would probably be ketamine. Ketamine initially in the 70s had some case series that were uh, associated with um, some increases in um, intracranial pressure, which is happening with a TBI, and we'll get into that a little bit later, but um, that is, you know, has since been re uh, debunked, and so that's why it's always important, too, to make sure that you're up to date with the, the literature on what you're trying to assess for. But in my head, I'm thinking, okay, so I need to make sure that this patient doesn't become hypotensive and he doesn't become hypoxic. Those are the two worst secondary injuries that I can have in a primary, in a TBI. Um, hypotension, it, just one episode is associated with increased mortality. Hypoxemia is also increased with, uh, or associated with increased mortality. Um, and so these are things that you have to think about for a patient that it has a traumatic brain injury. Right. And they're looking at what, systolic less than 90 and O2 sets less than 60? Yeah, so that's probably your your best uh, best bet there in terms of uh, judging these patients. But yeah, that's that's so the reason we do that is that uh, in a traumatic brain injury, we're all um, the the main goal uh, uh, is to maintain cerebral perfusion pressure or CPP. So that is basically the the pressure that is maintaining blood flow to your brain at this point. So yours and eyes probably a CPP value of 60 to 70, um, maybe less when we're sleeping, maybe more when we're working. Um, and so this is all um, functioned and basically controlled by our brain by a process called cerebral autoregulation. And that's basically your, your brain's capacity or ability to maintain that pressure with different uh, variances and volumes. So I drew a crude graph here. I don't know if it'll show up, but hopefully it will. Basically what you have here is your main CPP level, which we are trying to maintain at all times. Now, it does this by constriction and vasodilating the different arteries and, and the vasculature. It can, it can do this with different variances in volume up to a point. And at that point, when it can no longer uh, maintain that, you see a sharp increase in pressure. And the reason you see that sharp increase in pressure is because of a, a principle called the Monroe-Kelly Doctrine. And the Monroe-Kelly Doctrine is basically a fancy way of saying that your skull has a fixed finite amount of space. It's just, it makes sense, right? So we have this cranium, it has 
has brain tissue in it, has blood, and a CSF. Well, obviously mine's a little bit bigger because it's like I have a big head and that's just the way it is. But we all each have a fixed finite amount of space within there. Now, when you when you have a traumatic brain injury, it's just like anything else. It's just like when you sprain your ankle. Um, there's increases in um, cytokines and pro-inflammatory markers that causes free water to shift into the cranium. Well, that's all well and dandy until we reach that point at which uh, we can no longer auto-regulate using vasoconstriction or vasodilation, and we have sharp increases in intracranial pressure. Now, we said that the whole main goal for anything is, is for our brain is to maintain cerebral perfusion pressure. Well, the equation for that is cerebral perfusion pressure is equal to our mean arterial pressure minus intracranial pressure. So intracranial pressure increases as the amount of volume that's within the cap of the brain cranium increases. And so that is basically um, what I just showed you here in that, in that graph. Um, where you have a large volume increase within the cranium and then a large uh, pressure increase. Right. And what happens there is you decrease uh, blood flow to your brain, and at, at that point we expire. So those are your basically basically your main things you're trying to prevent as a pharmacist um, is these second injuries with secondary injuries with hypotension and then also hypoxemia, all based off of this. So. If you get anything out of this podcast or lecture, it's that we want to maintain cerebral perfusion pressure. Right. Uh, okay, that's a lot. And I know it's a lot. No, that's the other. So let's go back to this patient case. So the first thing I'd want to know when I start talking to uh, paramedics or when he gets to my ED is, like you said, I want to know what his blood pressure is and if he's hypoxic. I also want to know exactly what I can intubate with or what I can't intubate with. And those are, those are all discussions for like a whole nother uh, time, but that's the main, uh, main thing you're thinking about. So as a pharmacist, I can do pretty much uh, two, two things at that point. I can make sure that we are giving him the most proper uh, medications before we intubate him to make sure he's not hypoxic. And then I can also make sure that he's not hypotensive. Um, we also have medications that I said that there's free water now into your cranium. We can give medications that will uh, draw some of that fluid out, and that's called hyperosmolar therapy. Right. And that it basically is is a, a treatment option or treatment therapy that uh, essentially creates a gradient between our uh, cerebral cavity and then also our intravascular uh, intravascular volume. And I always make my residents laugh on this. And it's basically uh, when you start talking about hyperosmolar therapy, I say, if you had two trees and you had 74 squirrels on one tree and you had three on the other, what would happen? So the squirrels from the 74 tree would jump over to the three. And that's exactly what happens with hyperosmolar therapy. You give a drug that has a lot more solute within the the drug itself causing the free water to shift. And that's exactly what happens. And so when that happens, you alleviate the pressure and the brain is able to auto-regulate again with the amount of fluid that's there, maintaining cerebral perfusion pressure. So quick, quick question. Uh, so is mannitol, I know is one of the go-to agents. Um, what about uh, hypertonic saline? I've seen like some debate. This is totally not my area, so I'm I'm literally asking for for me too. <laughs> but like, yeah, I know there's a debate on like whether or not to use mantle or hypertonic saline, and then like what concentration. 
of hypertonic saline to actually use. Can you talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. So hypertonic is probably my favorite drug. Um, and that's something that if I could, uh, it, as a pharmacy student that you don't really get taught that much is that fluids are drugs. They serve a purpose to correct a medical issue. So pharmacy students and PAs, residents, all that, just know that fluids are a drug as well that you are actively involved in. But so the, the debate between hypertonic and mannitol, talking to a guy that's very pro hypertonic saline, um, there's really not much of a debate. Um, the literature has shown that there's better uh, associated outcomes with uh, hypertonic saline use. Now, which one to use will depend on the severity of the injury. So if a patient has more severe brain injury and they have severe increases in intracranial pressure, you're probably going to use a more concentrated version of hypertonic. Um, and so some of the considerations when you think about that is, do I have access? Do I have a central line? Um, because you're not going to want to give something that's super concentrated through a peripheral line. At that point, you're just going to blow the line. And at that point as well, the patient is going to start to extravasate and it's going to cause severe pain for that patient. So um, some of the properties that I like about with, and we'll, we'll talk about, I guess, the debate on hypertonic versus mannitol. The, the debate with hypertonic and mannitol is that they're both uh, hyperosmolar agents. They both um, decrease swelling within the brain and they do both uh, cause decreases in intracranial pressure. But um, really it comes down to is the patient hemodynamically stable or not? So one of the ways that, or one of the other actions of uh, mannitol is that not only does it draw solutes away from the brain, it also causes osmotic diuresis. And so when you have that, um, you're actually dropping your MAP, which we know is a big proponent of uh, cerebral perfusion pressure, which is, a, is, is an issue. So if we're dropping our MAP, we're dropping our CPP, which is bad. Even if we're dropping the ICP, it's not, it's not good. Um, you also have increases in renal failure associated with mannitol. You have some with uh, hypertonic, but not quite as much as mannitol. Um, and then the other big knock on mannitol is that um, it has a property called, um, it's going back to general chemistry here, but it's called your reflection coefficient, which basically just tells you a way something will distribute one way or another. Same, so you probably did it in a chemistry class, oil and water. Mm -hmm. So a reflection coefficient of zero means that it will freely pass from each solute or each fluid to each fluid. Uh, reflection coefficient of one means that uh, it will not pass whatsoever. So the reflection coefficient of mannitol is 0.9. So you're like, oh, great. It's, it's pretty good. It's not going to pass that much. However, when you have repeat doses of mannitol to treat intracranial pressures or elevated intracranial pressures, it actually will then start to cause what we call, uh, call rebound uh, intracranial pressures. It'll basically distribute into the cerebral tissue, drawing free water back into the brain. So there's a big issue in that. Um, and, and so you basically are defeating the purpose of what you're trying to do. The hypertonic saline has a reflection coefficient of one, so it's great. It doesn't freely cross. Um, it's a volume expander, so you're going to increase your MAP and decrease your ICP. Um, the, really, the only patient population you probably wouldn't use it in is if somebody is already hyperchloremic. Um, you can cause metabolic acidosis in that, in that uh, patient population. And then really the only other knock on uh, hypertonic is that you do need 
uh, peripheral or uh, central access for anything greater than 3%. Right. There's been a lot of uh, debate as to whether or not you can give 3% hypertonic saline uh, peripherally or not. There's been uh, really not any more debate on that because there's been multiple studies now that have shown that it's safe and effective at, at doing so. Uh, so I think that was probably initially patients would come into the trauma bay, you only have peripheral access. So it's like, oh, we'll give them a dose of mannitol. But it's really no debate now. I, I'm very comfortable with giving them 3% at that point. And then the other thing is whether or not a patient will uh, require continuous infusion of hypertonic saline. Yeah. Um, there's debate on that as well, bolus versus continuous infusions. And this is where you as a pharmacist just need to interpret the literature on your own. Yeah. And so. to support your point about hypertonic saline, um, there was a small study published in Critical Care Med CCM back in 2003 um, by Violet and colleagues, I think is how you say his name. He's one of the authors. Very small, like 20 patients, um, but it was comparing mannitol to hypertonic saline, um, each given a dose and monitored and whatnot. And there was um, mean number and duration of recurrent elevated intracranial pressure episodes were higher in the mannitol group than hypertonic saline. So that's just one small study, but um, so I wouldn't. There's actually been growing. So there's no, so there's no mortality data ever going to be. So first of all, yeah, there's no mortality data associated with either agent just because there's, you're never going to do that study. Like it's just never going to get done. However, like you said, there is um, surrogate marker outcomes that have shown that uh, hypertonic saline is better overall. I don't really think that there's a, uh, I mean, there's some people that still want to use mannitol, but for the most part, once once you show them the literature, there's really not a, a patient population you probably wouldn't use uh, hypertonic saline gotcha. in. Gotcha. Cool. So hypertonic saline it is. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> like I said, you could ask three or four different other pharmacists. They may have a different answer, but um, that's probably um, – going to be the majority of their answers gotcha. um, that's the big thing. so like what are the other things you're looking at as far as um acute um issues yeah so acute issues is maintaining like we said maintaining blood pressure maintaining uh adequate ox oxygenation if they have any signs of impending impending herniation um if they have um what we call the cushing's triad which is uh agonal respirations uh hypotension and then uh, tachycardia that's signs that they're about to herniate through their skull and at that point um you when you do that and you end up with um death at that point um so yeah we're looking at do we need to give hyperosmolar therapy now do we need to hyperventilate them things like that the other things is these patients have increases in metabolic disturbances they have uh increased uh excitatory neurotransmitter releases during the acute phase in the first seven days after injury so you have to make sure that these patients are getting um a seizure prophylaxis at this point and then there's been uh, studies that have looked at do i use phenytoin do i use keppra do i or levetiracetam um do i use another agent and for the most part the data uh is is leaned towards the use of phosphenytoin with Keppra a close, close second, um, it's there's probably institution-based and also probably surgeon-based who or, or trauma surgeon or traumatic intensivist-based that will pick either one. I'm okay with either as well. Um, I probably would choose levetiracetam over phosphenitoin or phenytoin 
um, just due to ability to to give it faster and for um, drug drug interactions. But Less, That's just me. And less kinetic equations too, right? Kalis Minton, yeah, yeah, he comes back. <laughs> so, um, like, will you, yeah, that's with the uh, as far as like phenytoin, if I remember correctly, if you have to obviously do to draw levels, you have to do kinetics equations and, and figure out dosing and see if you need to go up or down or keep it as is. Um, when you draw a phenytoin level, isn't it the free phenytoin level that's typically drawn? It gives you a more accurate picture. Is that correct or am i just making that up yeah so i mean you can so we'll get into it but yeah you, you can you can draw the free and it's actually you don't have to do quite as much uh calculations and um you don't have to have an albumin to basically correct for it but actually when you are dosing for seizure prophylaxis and tbi we're actually not drawing levels we're actually do okay with just a flat um usually it's a hundred of phosphatoin three times a day or if they're able to take oral at that point we'll do um uh, my institution will do phenytoin 300 milligrams at night because it's a little bit more sedating. Gotcha. But yeah, we're, we're not drawing levels at that point on these patients because it's just prophylaxis. They're not actively seizing. Gotcha. Right. Makes sense. And it's just for seven days. There was a large study done. Uh, it was published in New England, and I think it was right around 97, 98, something like that, that showed that basically seizure prophylaxis extended past seven days had no, no benefit. These patients that... Um, we're going to seize, they were going to seize either way, whether they were on prophylaxis or not. Um, it's actually a bad sign when a patient is seizing early on in traumatic brain injury. Um, so those are, those are things to think about as well. At that point, we may actually start to draw levels to make sure that we are therapeutic if they had actively seized before. But again, if the patient has uh, blood on their brain, that is um, going to cause them to seize. So if we can get rid of that or manage that, Hopefully, we've uh, managed their uh, seizures at, at that point, too. Gotcha. Cool. Uh, other things to think about for these patients, too, is if they are intubated, that you want to make sure that they're sedated. And they're also, uh, they're, at this point, they're also a trauma patient. So he's got rib, this patient has rib fractures. Um, so increased uh, pain levels is also associated with increased intracranial pressure. So I want to make sure that their patient is uh monitored and sedated properly where we're not dropping maps, but we're also maintaining low levels of sedation so that we can do more frequent neuro checks if we need to. Um, and then, and like I said, make sure we're um, adequately treating this patient's pain. So that's, those are other things to think about. So those are all different things that pharmacists really can make an impact on um, early on is getting them on the right sedative and then getting them on um, the right pain regimen as well. So, you know, real quick, but what, what do you, um, what's kind of the options for sedation in these patients? So when you start, you know, you have to start, start thinking about um, the ideal characteristics of these agents. So fast on, fast off is great. So I can uh, do these neuro exams. And then I would like something that is going to not accumulate or affect anything uh, hemodynamically wise. Um, so when you start thinking about these agents, um, propofol is probably up there for a majority of people. It's fast on, fast off. Only problem is that you're looking at, it does drop uh, MAPS and it can cause um, decreases in heart rate. So you're worried about hemodynamic, hemodynamic stability at that point. Um, a lot of people too will look at um, ketamine. Ketamine has been making a really big uh, comeback right now. 
Um, ketamine is great because it gives you um, not only sedation, but it gives you some pain uh, as well. And it also acts on NMDA receptors, so you actually have some anti-seizure properties as well. So ketamine is really the Swiss Army knife of like your drugs in the ED. It does a little bit of everything. So I we we've been uh, pro ketamine and using quite a bit of it here, especially with the opiate shortage. Um, so it's been it's been a good a it's been a good agent to use. Um, the other thing you can think about is analogous sedation, which it's it's hard to push right now when you know there's such a shortage of uh, opiates, fentanyl, uh, hydromorphone. Some people some people will still do morphine drips. We we tend to stay away from those just because of the hemodynamic instability of that agent. But those are also options. Um, you can also use uh, things like Presidex for a little bit lighter sedation. Um, it's a, also a pretty pretty decent choice. Has uh, opiate sparing activity as well. Also have to worry about it with hemodynamic instability. I would say the majority of people have uh, in the trauma world for, especially for TBI, have steered away from uh, midazolam drips, lorazepam drips as well, just because it's so lipophilic and you have it on, it stays on for such a long time and it's so difficult to get neuro exams with those agents. But um, I'm sure that there may be some institutions out there still doing it. Hopefully not, but Maybe they listen to this podcast and they stop doing it. They switch to like propofol or changing, <laughs> changing protocols. No, that's awesome. Hopefully, man. well, um, the uh, and I'm just trying to think of random things that I remember from my rotation just to get some clarification. So maybe it'll help us, you know, a student who's not trained in this area but has a rotation or something. Um, lorazepam IV when they're getting it like that isn't isn't that the one that we're worried about? Uh, propylene glycol. Yep. Yeah, we absolutely uh, can can have that. And that is, um, so if you are monitoring in these patients, um, usually if they're intubated, obviously, hopefully they're intubated if you're giving them a lorazepam drip and you'll start to see that they're acidotic without any sort of explanation. And at that point, you'll check a lactic acid. And if their lactic acid is elevated, that goes back to the old mud piles, yeah. uh, mud piles thing. So and that's on your radar. Um, but yeah, that's, that's one of the reasons we try to stay away from it. But, yeah. um, you know, and this guy it's, you know, IV lorazepam for somebody that has some alcohol on board. We're not really sure of his intake. Then you start working about worrying about, is he going to withdraw if I take away, um, that gabinergic, uh, type of uh, regulation he was having. So yeah, maybe, maybe a PRN boluses of it, but at that point, you know, you would hopefully have a better history, but sometimes you don't, sometimes you don't. Right. Right. Cool. So, so what else? We talked about seizure prophylaxis. We talked about sedation. Talked about intracranial um, pressure. Intracranial pressure. Um, is there any other big aspects? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, you could go all day with it, but right. yeah. So you're also thinking about correcting these patients coagulopathies. Okay. Um, so they will all um, typically, you know, uh, nowadays, most of your level one trauma centers are getting um, what we call TEGs or thromboelastographies, which are basically a uh, printout or a representation of their uh, clotting cascade from start to finish. And so with that, you'll try to treat the underlying coagulopathy if needed, if, especially too if they're a patient that's on uh, like Coumadin or if they're on a one of the DOACs, like at that point, you would have to correct for that as well. 
So you see a lot of those. You'll have a lot of uh, DOAC or warfarin-associated hip bleeds as well that are traumatic in nature because they fell and they were on warfarin and now they have a subdural hematoma and a subarachnoid that they're bleeding into the brain. So you'll have to correct for that. You can use, right now, pretty much all the literature is pointing towards uh, prothrombin complex concentrate or PCC. Um, most, most centers are using case center at this point. Um, so you can do that. That's that's also something the pharmacist is very heav heavily uh, involved with. Um, and there's been more and more emerging literature on the use of, and you'll probably start to see it too with um, in the next two or three years, but fixed dose versus what the manufacturer is recommending. Manufacturers recommending like huge doses for these patients, whereas there's been two or three really small studies out of, one of them was out of Canada. Um, I can't remember what the other one was, but they were using um, just sort of these fixed dose. So the 250 uh, pound patient was getting the same as the 110 pound, you know, elderly lady. Right. So it's interesting. And then some of the other things too is, uh, you know, or hyperthermia. Uh, we want to correct and keep them uh, eumothermic. There's been some, some literature on, do we cool these head patients? Do we not cool them? And it's pretty mixed at this point, um, depending on, where you go, some of them may have a cooling protocol, but I don't think that there's a, any debate that uh, hyperthermia for these patients is bad. Um, so, or is is good. So they they will correct for correct for that. But um, you know, those are some of the things that um, you know if we're scheduling antipyretics at that point, or if we're trying to do does this patient have an infection at this point. So those are all different things you have to to think about. Um, and then ask the pharmacist, what's their, what's, what's their mechanism? So are they febrile because of the, the trauma? Are they febrile now because he's got broken ribs and he's got atelectasis? He's not moving air as well. Or is it he has rib fractures and now he has a pneumonia on top of his traumatic brain injury? So these are all different things that we can uh, look at as far as uh, treatment um, and things that we are very heavily involved in. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome, man. Well, I'll tell you what, we, uh, we got to kind of wrap it up, but, um, yeah. I, I think that, uh, if you're interested, we probably need to do a part two at some <laughs> point because Listen, I can talk about this stuff all day, man. <laughs> no, and, and it's awesome because I'm learning sitting here too. So this is great for me. And like I was saying originally, I don't have any experience with this other than like my one rotation this is totally out of my field. So this is, this is great. I'm like super interested just listening and you can tell you're really passionate about it too, which is great because you can tell like there's some people that it's like, ah, you know, critical care, whatever you like, love critical care. You can tell it's great. <laughs> That's awesome. man. We'd love to see that. So yeah, I mean, if you're interested, we'll definitely have you back on soon if, if you want to. And, um, you know, talk some more cause I think we definitely have a ton more to cover. I just, we got to keep it somewhat in the time frame. Uh, before everything starts shutting down, <laughs> um, due to yeah, 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 yeah. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. but yeah, if, um, if you're interested, man, we'd love to have you back and I really, really appreciate you taking the time to, to do this with us. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you. I thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. You guys do good work. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Man. Um, if somebody, if a student or anybody wants to get in touch with you, or has questions for you, do you want to give your email or something to yeah, I'll send it to you. You can put it up with the post if you want. Yeah, they can absolutely uh, shoot me an email. I, absolutely. So part of part of what I do as well is I take on residents, I take on students, and 
yeah, it's, it's part of the job as well. So absolutely. Awesome. All right. So we'll do that. So if you guys have questions, make sure you, uh, email Brian and not me or Cole because he's going to have better answers than us. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so I, if, yeah, we'll do that and we'll put it on the, the website. Um, Brian, again, man, really appreciate you. Uh, if you guys enjoyed that, please uh, leave a comment. Uh, also, Brian has some social media stuff. I'm sure he wouldn't mind you following him um, if you're going to reach out to him. And uh, make sure you leave a comment, subscribe to the podcast, and we will try to include a lot more critical care uh, concepts onto the Instagram and the flash briefings for Amazon's Alexa, things like that. So, Brian, good talking to you, man, and we'll keep in touch. All right. Thank you, guys. All right. Thank you. Thanks, everyone.